This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Larissa Meyer, who is an Associate Professor here in the Department of Gynecological Oncology and Reproductive Medicine at MD Anderson. Um, welcome, Larissa. Thank you so much, Pedro. It's good to be here. Well, Larissa, this, uh, this podcast is on a uh, prospective study uh, that we published, and I have to actually also announce that, announce that disclaimer. I am one of the co-authors on this uh, manuscript. Um, this is a prospective randomized trial comparing liposomal bupivacaine versus standard bupivacaine wound infiltration in open gynecologic surgery on an enhanced recovery program, and this is published in the American Journal of obstetrics and gynecology. So, Larissa, congratulations, first of all, on um, being the first author on this uh, prospective randomized study. And um, I wanted to first ask you, um, obviously, you know, pain management in the postoperative period is uh, extremely important, particularly in the setting of an ERAS program. So I was wondering if you could tell us as to why um, you decided uh, to perform uh, this study and what was the gap in knowledge at the time of initiation of the study? Absolutely. Well, as you know, pain is one of the main acute symptoms associated with surgery. And therefore, as medical providers, we're always trying to improve surgical recovery for our patients. And as such, pain management is really crucial. As we studied our initial experience pre- and post-implementation of ERAS, we had noted that we had had a 39% reduction in intraoperative opioid use and a marked 72% reduction in post-operative um, hospital opioid use during post-op days zero to three. And interestingly, after in implementation of ERAS, we noticed that we had 16% of women who utilized no post-operative opioids after open laparotomy during that same time period of post-op day zero to three. So we really wanted to see if we could both improve the overall general pain management as well as specifically increase the percentage of patients who could remain opioid-free during their post-op course. Oftentimes, when new technology becomes available, there's a lot of enthusiasm to adopt it. But we felt there was a gap in knowledge, meaning there was no concrete evidence to support whether the addition of liposomal bupivacaine into the wound after laparotomy would really be the most effective analgesia compared to what we had previously been doing, which was standard bupivacaine on our enhanced recovery pathway. Yeah. So then that gets me to, to the next point. And I was wondering if you could uh, describe, particularly for some of our international audience, uh, what is liposomal bupivacaine? And how is it different from standard bubivacaine? And then lastly, as a follow-up to that question, is there a difference in the cost of the, of the two products? Sure. Well, liposomal bupivacaine is a long-acting local anesthetic that was FDA-approved in the United States for a single-dose infiltration into the surgical site to produce post-surgical analgesia. And this was FDA-approved in 2011. It basically utilizes a depot foam drug delivery system that is an aqueous suspension of multivesicular liposomes that contain the bupivacaine. And this is kept in sort of a honeycomb-like structure that allows for more gradual release. Mm -hmm. So some describe this mechanism as following um, a two-compartment model. So you get this initial release of bupivacaine followed by a more gradual release of the drug from the liposomes over 48 to 72 hours. 
So you compare that to a standard bupivacaine, which may have, you know, a quick onset of action, but only lasts for a few hours. This was really designed to work up to 72 hours after injection. And to answer your second question, yes, there's a significant difference in the cost of liposomal bupivacaine versus that standard quarter percent bupivacaine, perhaps up to a hundredfold. I see. And then now, Larissa, when uh, obviously there's a lot of enthusiasm about the use of this uh, particular agent, uh, the liposomal bupivacaine, um, when the study was uh, implemented, what did we know about the literature in terms of outcomes? And, and not necessarily in GYN literature, but in, in all of the literature in the surgical specialties with regards to the use of this uh, agent? That's a great question. Uh, you know, from my readings, there's mixed outcomes in the literature regarding use of liposomal bupivacaine and its effects. And this may be in part due to differences in study design and the definition of the control arm, as well as differences in the application and the types of surgery. For example, there's been huge uptake in a lot of the orthopedic literature, uh, but there's you know broad research uh, in pretty much every surgical subspecialty looking at liposomal bupivacaine. There was, however, a recent Cochrane review of liposomal bupivacaine infiltration at surgical sites. And unfortunately, they found such significant heterogeneity of studies mm -hmm. that it really precluded any kind of meta-analysis. So in that particular Cochrane review, the authors concluded that the limited evidence did not demonstrate a clear superiority of liposomal bupivacaine compared with uh, standard bupivacaine. I see. So now let's get on to the study, the prospective uh, randomized uh, trial. Um, what was the primary objective of the study, and uh, what were some of your secondary endpoints? That's a great question. And honestly, we really debated a long time about what we thought the best primary outcome measure should be for the study. Ultimately, we were really trying to find something that would be practice changing or, or very clinically meaningful. So we determined our primary outcome to be the proportion of patients who did not receive any postoperative opioids within the first 48 hours after surgery. However, we also included many secondary outcome measures, which included the number of opioid-free days uh, from postoperative day zero to three, total morphine equivalent daily doses from postop uh, day zero to day three, symptom burden and functional recovery using uh, patient-reported outcomes with the MD Anderson symptom inventory. We also looked at routine pain assessments from nursing staff, time to first post-operative opioid administration, including in the uh, post-anesthesia care unit or PACU. Mm -hmm. And then now with regards to the study design, um, what was the design and, and how many patients were projected to be in the study? So this was a prospective, randomized, single-blind study, again, of wound infiltration of liposomal bupivacaine mixed with quarter percent bupivacaine as our study arm versus the control arm, which was standard quarter percent bupivacaine in patients undergoing open surgery on our enhanced recovery pathway. We randomized patients using uh, the research electronic data capture in a one-to-one -one fashion, and we stratified this by primary surgeon. Now, while participants and the post-operative nursing staff were blinded to the treatment arm, surgeons were not. They, they knew which arm uh, the patient was on. 
initially we aimed to enroll 200 patients and that was determined by sample size calculations which stated that we would need 100 patients per arm to give us the standard 80% power to detect an absolute increase of about 20% in the proportion of patients who would be opioid free. And Larissa, the, you mentioned the randomization. Uh, just for clarification, when was the randomization performed? Uh, randomization was performed after consent. Okay. So prior to uh, surgery, not intraoperatively. Um, Correct. Now, what were the inclusion and exclusion criteria? So as with any study, Pedro, there were a number of inclusion and exclusion criteria, but they're, I think, pretty standard and self-explanatory. The inclusion criteria included patients having to undergo an exploratory laparotomy for a suspected cancer with planned participation within our enhanced recovery after surgery pathway, which was essentially all of our patients undergoing open surgery. It also included a lot of the standard criteria, such as being female, 18 years of age or older, consenting to being part of the prospective study. We also required patients be able to read and speak English, given the patient-reported outcome measures that were embedded in our study and crucial to the outcomes. Patients also, of course, had to have the physical and mental capabilities to take part. Uh, and then some specific safety considerations. Patients had to have adequate liver function, as determined by bilirubin and AST and ALT levels um, in order to safely be able to get the liposomal bupivacaine or the standard bupivacaine with negative urine pregnancy te okay. tests as well. Great. And um, now I, so some of the questions that I will post to you came from our fellows in the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. Um, one of those questions is the next one is, uh, the question is, one of the elements of any interventional study is the learning curve or, or the technique component. How did you assure that surgeons were consistently applying the liposomal bupivacaine or the standard bupivacaine the appropriate way? That's a great question. Technique is really so important. To address the issue of learning curve and technique, we had all surgeons participating in this trial, including our clinical trainees, as well as the surgical faculty, undergo training that included direct observation of their injection techniques for both arms from the sponsor of the trial. And, now, and we did this before study accrual as well. Exactly, yes, before the study. Um, and then uh, as a follow-up question to that, um, you know, you mentioned the, the, the two arms, um, and, of course, liposomal bupivacaine versus standard uh, bupivacaine. Um, one of the questions that actually came up as well was, uh, why was there no placebo arm? Uh, what would you say to those that inquired about this point? That's a great question and very valid. You know, I think for research to be ethical, the control arm should really represent the current standard of care. So for some research questions, a placebo arm may be the appropriate control. However, in our case, our current standard of care was having patients on our enhanced recovery after surgery protocol uh, receive local wound infiltration with quarter percent bupivacaine. So it didn't seem ethical or right to then take that away uh, and have a, a placebo arm. So we were trying to see if we could improve on our current standard, hence the active control arm. And then as a, a subsequent question, a follow-up to that, mentioning what is the standard, 
in, in terms of uh, the ERAS program. The next question was, uh, were there any patients that received epidural during this study? And uh, if not, why not? That's a very valid question. Uh, as epidurals were described as part of multimodal analgesia in many of the early enhanced recovery after surgery guidelines. However, in our study, none of our patients had epidurals, and we chose not to include epidurals as part of our enhanced recovery program in the Department of Gynecologic Oncology at MD Anderson Cancer Center because we had some concerns about epidurals causing other downstream issues that could limit our patients' ability to fully participate in other important aspects of enhanced recovery, such as minimization of IV fluids and early ambulations due to concerns of epidural-related hypotension and such. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and now, Larissa, uh, and I know that obviously you can speak to, to this point for much longer than the length of this uh, podcast, uh, because I know it's your, one of your areas of interest and, uh, and expertise. The issue of uh, patient-reported uh, outcomes. Um, you used uh, something called the Medassi GYN uh, tool, can you just explain to our audience uh, just what, what are patient-reported outcomes and, and what is the Medassi GYN? Sure. So patient-reported outcomes are really any answer uh, coming directly from a patient without being interpreted by someone from a medical team. Um, there are many different patient-reported outcome tools that one can choose from. In this study, we used the MD Anderson Cancer Center Symptom Inventory, uh, which is in essence, a multi-symptom patient-reported outcome measure that can be used both for clinical use as well as research use um, to assess both the severity of symptoms experienced by patients with cancer as well as the interference of those symptoms with daily living. And this is something that subsequently has actually been actively validated in patients with gynecologic cancer undergoing surgery specifically. Um, there's 13 core symptom items on the, on the Medassi GYN that include things like pain, fatigue, nausea, disturbed sleep, distress, shortness of breath, difficulty remembering, lack of appetite, drowsiness, sadness, vomiting, and then things typically related to chemotherapy like numbness and tingling. But importantly, there's also um, six core interference items that can be very useful in assessing surgical recovery, such as interference with walking activity, working, relations with other people, enjoyment of life, and mood. Um, this scale, and this part's important when thinking about PROs, this scale aimed to measure the worst level of the, the individual symptom in the preceding 24 hours on an 11-point scale, so rated from 0 to 10. Um, and in prior research, we found that interference with walking is perhaps the most sensitive single-item PRO measure for functional recovery after surgery. Great. And, and, and it absolutely is a great tool um, to really have an understanding of uh, patients' functional recovery. So then now, um, the main findings of the study, and I, I'm going to ask you to go through the main results, and then we'll go specifically through some of those questions. What did you find? So the central finding of our study, um, Pedro, was that adding liposomal bupivacaine to standard bupivacaine did not improve the proportion of patients who were able to be essentially opioid-free between post-op day zero and post-operative day two, which approximates the 72 hours or the presumed amount of time that liposomal bupivacaine would be providing analgesia. 
And now the w- one of the one of the questions that um, came up from the uh, from the fellows was: uh, Did the size of the incision matter? Uh, did you look at this specifically in the study? So we did, and that's a great question. In our study, we did not find that the size of the incision mattered. And to clarify what I mean by that is I'm not saying that pain or opioid use is the same depending on the size of the incision, but really rather that the determination of small, medium, and large incisions did not differ along the two study arms. So for example, there were no significant differences in the length of the incision between the two arms. There was a median length of 25 centimeters in the control group and 27 centimeters in the experimental arm. So You know, while none of our analyses really looked at incision size, uh, found them to be statistically significant, but we did take incision size into account in the design of the study, uh, specifically in the amount of additional saline that was used to expand out the liposomal bupivacaine to allow for a sort of, you know, for a similar coverage of the area of the incision. Um, And this was, you know, done with with guidance, obviously, uh, from from pharmacy as well as individuals from the company. Um, so for example, for large incisions, we would use 195 millimeters, milliliters, I'm sorry, of additional saline compared to 85 milliliters for small incisions. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and I recall us uh, having to do a lot of those measurements in the, in the operating room as well. Um, now the, the other question was actually, uh, was the complexity of the surgery comparable between the two groups? Yeah, and that's a great question. And unfortunately, we didn't do analyses to answer this question. And that's uh, because of the following reason. So the surgical complexity score is really designed and validated in ovarian cancer patients. And so we only collected surgical complexity scores for women with ovarian fallopian tube or primary peritoneal cytoreductive surgeries. Mm-hmm. The study that we published included a broader range of patients and diagnoses. So not all of them had surgical complexity scores available. Yeah. Um, one of the subsequent questions from the fellows also, um, you know, recently, um, Javier Lasala, um, and we actually also did a, a podcast on, on his study as well, but uh, from our team, he uh, published on the potential benefits of total intravenous anesthesia, uh, reducing post-operative opioid use, um, so the question um, being asked here is, was there any difference in terms of the anesthetic technique uh, that was used in the two study groups in this particular study? Again, Dr. Ramirez, that's a great question. Um, we did not analyze differences in anesthetic technique in the study, so I'm unable to comment on that question in regards to the outcomes of this particular study. Mm-hmm. Uh, fair enough. And then now the use of non-opioid analgesia post-op. In other words, yes, uh, one focuses on opioid use, but uh, was there a difference in the non-opioid medications that were given in either of these groups? Again, that's a great question. And unfortunately, I don't have sufficient information to answer that question. That is something obviously we could go back retrospectively and look at, but that was not part of the initial study design and analysis and so we don't have that information yeah and I, and I do keep telling our fellows that they're sending in really good questions for the authors that are interviewed on the podcast so uh, absolutely the reviewers <laughs> didn't ask us that question and if they did we probably would have that answer today <laughs> so cre- credit to them 
Uh, now, uh, another question was, um, you didn't include chronic opioid users. And, and, and these are not many uh, of the patients that we see, but do, do you think you would have the same findings in a, in a chronic pain population? You know, that's a great question. I don't think we have any reason to believe that we would have different findings in a chronic pain population. However, the reason why we excluded chronic opioid users was really more because it's more difficult to standardize a postoperative pain regimen in patients who are on significant doses of chronic opioids prior to surgery. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that should really impact the findings of the study in any way. Yeah. This is, this is an interesting point that was raised, um, and, uh, and I'd really love to hear your comments about this. Um, the question was, if this study was conducted in a non-GYN population, do you think the outcomes, for example, could be different in the male population? Again, you know, that's a, a valid question, uh, and we know that different people experience pain in different ways. Uh, but based on what I've read, I don't think so. I don't think that we would see different outcomes if it was in a male population. There was a study of 280 patients where patients were randomized to either single administration of standard bupivacaine versus liposomal bupivacaine in patients undergoing truncal incisions for cardiothoracic or vascular surgery. Uh, And in this study, only 36% of the patients were women, so the vast majority were men. And they also found no benefit uh, in the liposomal bupivacaine arm. Yeah. Now, Larissa, uh, there was a, a previous retrospective cohort study by Eleftheria Calogera from the Mayo Clinic that looked at a, a similar question, as I recall, uh, and found different results to yours. Why, why do you think that is? That's a great question, uh, you know, and it's something that we've obviously thought about at length. Uh, I think in essence, it's really hard to compare our findings to the study by Dr. Calagara and her colleagues at the Mayo Clinic. But it's really important, I think, to note that the study designs were quite different. Our study was a prospective randomized single-blind study, and the study by Dr. Calagara and her colleagues was a retrospective cohort study while in a very similar patient population, you know, namely patients undergoing laparotomy for gynecologic malignancies on an enhanced recovery pathway, uh, their study wasn't randomized and it was compared to a historical control arm. And so by virtue of their study design, there could have been other improvements and developments over time between that sort of pre and post uh, study design that could potentially have introduced potential sources of bias and may account for the difference between our findings and theirs. Yeah. And, and um, one of the other topics that often comes up is uh, the use of um, transversus abdominis uh, plane blocks of, or tap blocks. Um, any data on doing this with liposomal bubivacaine? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of studies, actually, that have been published looking at TAP blocks with liposomal bupivacaine. Um, and again, I think the, the findings are pretty mixed. So, for example, a study in 2018 looked at liposomal bupivacaine TAP blocks versus epidurals in an enhanced recovery pathway for people undergoing colon and rectal surgery. And they found no significant differences in a numeric pain scale uh, and an overall benefit of analgesia score between the groups. So. 
They did find that opioid use was significantly less uh, with the TAP block group, but no significant differences in terms of GI recovery, length of stay, that kind of thing. And they noted that the cost was actually more for the epidural group. Um, You know, there's also been a recent study published looking at women undergoing cesarean delivery with spinal anesthesia, TAP block versus... uh, Actually, tap blocks with liposomal bupivacaine plus standard bupivacaine, which is similar to our active control versus bupivacaine alone. Mm-hmm. In that study, you know, their primary endpoint end was total post-op opioid consumption through 72 hours. Mm-hmm. And they found um, theirs was a positive study, and they found that to- total opioid consumption was actually less in the group that had the liposomal bupivacaine plus standard. Um, but, you know, there's, you know, I can give you there are so many, right? There's another study that looked at tap block versus, um, you know, with liposomal versus regular. And they found that there was no difference. And this was a randomized double-blinded trial, 219 patients, and they used fentanyl PCA. So, you know, very easy to actually track how much opioid they used. And they found uh, there was no significant difference. Interesting. Yeah. So I guess a lot of it depends on methodology and endpoints. So now um wanted to, to address some of the potential limitations. And uh, one question is, uh, do you think that with a sample size of 105 participants, uh, one can draw a definitive conclusion on liposomal bupivacaine efficacy in this population? And should we strive for a larger, multicentric, uh, prospective randomized trial? <laughs> That's a great question. But I think if you believe in statistics, then the answers are resounding no. So, you know, I think we need to think about the precious resources of research dollars, personnel time, and also our patients and their time and effort. Um, You know, as with many randomized control trials, we had a stopping rule built in for futility and safety. And so we had a planned interim analysis for both efficacy and futility that was performed after half of the patients were enrolled and had completed the 48-hour post-surgery follow-up. And, you know, the specific details for those who are, you know, very interested in statistics, our interim analysis utilized the O'Brien-Fleming stopping boundary um, with a nominal significance level of 0.72. So we uh, did this analysis after 102 patients were eligible for analysis, and our study was stopped for futility because it was determined that there was no difference in the primary endpoint you know, with 16.7% uh, of patients in the experimental arm being opioid-free compared to 148 in the control arm. So, you know, to conclude, I think if you're a believer in statistics, like I said at the beginning, you would not think that a larger randomized control trial would be warranted based on our findings. However, someone might want to repeat a study with a different design or different primary and secondary endpoints. And, you know, I think that's always an option. And then what about the um, applicability of the findings from this study in places where ERAS is not the standard? That's another great question. And while I can't say with certainty, if I had to hazard a guess, I would say the results of our study are applicable. So going back to a study that I had mentioned earlier, there was a recent study published in the JAMA Open Network in March of 2021 by Harleen Sandu and her colleagues at the University of Texas in a cardiovascular group. And they performed a randomized trial of liposomal bupivacaine versus standard bupivacaine for people undergoing truncal surgery, which included a variety of thoracic and uh, um, 
vascular uh, procedures. And this was not done in a setting of an enhanced recovery program, but they also had outcomes that did not favor the use of liposomal bupivacaine. Interesting. So now, Larissa, we're coming to the uh, to the end of the podcast, and one of the questions I always ask the authors is, uh, how should the results of this study uh, impact our day-to-day practice, our decisions as to what agents to use? Um, what's the main take-home message? I think the message of our study was that the addition of liposomal bupivacaine to standard bupivacaine within enhanced recovery for open surgery for gynecologic patients, it didn't really benefit patients in any meaningful way. So it didn't improve percentage of patients who were able to be opioid-free, nor was it beneficial from a variety of secondary endpoints, including patient-reported pain, functional recovery, or the total amount of opioids that patients required. So with that, then, I would like to thank you for your time, obviously, for addressing some of some of our very very targeted questions from our fellows and also my questions, uh, and once again, of course, Larissa, thank you for all that you have and continue to contribute to um, the the literature on enhanced recovery and patient reported outcomes. Um, and uh, we're really grateful that you participated in this podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. <laughs>